Thank you, Krista, at Calvary. Thank you for that reminder. It's good to be with you today. And we're glad that uh, we could be worshiping together. And let's see what we got going here. I'm on up here, John. Thank you. If you, are, if you have a little one through grade four and you'd like them to be in a children's church, they can be dismissed at this time. Follow the teachers and the, and the herd out the door. For the rest of you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, today, of course, afternoon, right after this service, is our Acts 246 service, which is the time of breaking bread and fellowship together right after the morning service. So we would invite you to plan to stay. There's plenty to eat, uh, and so we'd love to have you be with us in this time of fellowship. Very important for the church life, and so I encourage you to stay afterwards and, and uh, have, some, have a dinner with us. Stick around and play some volleyball or something if you'd like, and we'll have a great time right after this service. Turn in your copy of God's Word to... 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, we've, itiner- we've, we've tentatively uh, titled this chapter, Income, Itinerary, and Instructions. We've spent about six weeks on the income portion, four, really four verses, but with much implied there for them to understand, which we've gone over some of that background. Then we moved on to itinerary, that's where we are now, Paul's plans, and we've specifically labeled this, uh, this message and last week's uh, future planning and the work of God. And as we've noticed as we've gone through many of these passages with Paul at the end of his, of his uh, letters, we found that uh, he begins to talk about his ministry, his itinerary, and we are able to, as we look at that, uh, develop really a plan for what true, faithful ministry, hard work looks like uh, in the church. And so we're going to do that again today. It's been said that some of life's greatest satisfactions, including getting the last laugh, having the last word, and paying the last installment, uh, I certainly think that those things are true, but I would say, at least as we look at these, uh, these verses today and last week, I think um, one of the believer's greatest satisfactions is found, I think if we understand Paul's mind here, in serving the Lord and spending their lives in the ministry model that we see here. So, uh, we come into the church, I think, and perhaps have gone in the church and been in the church a long time, uh, supposing that we're serving the Lord or doing things that are pleasing to him. However, I think as we find these passages, we find our, our opportunities to conform what we think is uh, serving the Lord, what we think is working hard for the ministry, into actual models that actually are doing that very thing. And so that's really my prayer for you today as, as I've gone through this passage now, and I'm going to bring it to you. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the reward of a thing well done is to have done it. I think um, as we modify that a little bit, that's certainly true. But for the believer, I think the reward for a thing well done is still in the future. So the jury's still out, isn't it? Uh, as you accumulate uh, the works that you're doing in your life, uh, we're, we're reminded, I think, cautiously and importantly uh, about 1 Corinthians 4 and 5 as it talks about the beam of seat judgment and how the Lord will take uh, whatever was built on the foundation that was Christ and then put it through flame and some will stand and some will not. And I think that's very important to keep that in mind. So if you're concerned about that, which you should be, uh, then these types of passages, which we'll talk about today, become very important if you want to modify the way that you do ministry into such a way that what you're building, that wing you're building on that foundation uh, that is Christ, ends up lasting. It's not ba- made out of wood, hay, and stubble, but gold, silver, and costly stone. So look with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to pick up in verse 5. And I'd like you to read along with me to verse 12. That's our passage under consideration today. We Probably will not get through the whole thing, but we will get through enough. And as it's my prayer always that you, this is not the first time you've been in the Word this week, that you've been in the Word daily, 
If you haven't been in the Word daily, then you're starving this morning for something spiritual. And let me encourage you to take a trifold from uh, the welcome table out in the foyer. It is uh, together in the Word and begin to read through the Word daily. Let that be your guide or use one that's on your phone or your tablet so that you can daily be in the Word. You can understand what the Lord would desire for you to know on a daily basis. You hold that holy standard up next to your own life regularly. It allows you to praise and to worship the Lord and to submit to him on a daily basis as you see the things he's provided for you and the promises he has for you. You can praise him for those as you see the requirements that he has for you, those things that he has given you as commands. You can then conform yourself to that. And so very important way that you can maintain that relationship with the Lord and grow in your understanding of the word. So, so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. Paul says this, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. Verse 6, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Verse 7, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Verse 8, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Verse 9, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Verse 10, now... If Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Verse 11, so let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Verse 12, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him, to great, uh, her, encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. So let's stop right there. Now, last week, we began to dig into this passage and really set some introduction and some context to help us understand what's going on here, some handholds, if you will. It became immediately obvious that Paul uh, is, has a lot of influence and ministry in a lot of different places. And even though he's moved on from one church plant to another, he hasn't forgotten those people, and he prays for them and desires to see them. And we also see, uh, as we look at that, we can begin to pull out principles about what the work of the Lord looks like modeled by Paul. And, you know, it isn't the first time that we've seen that model. In fact, we see that model regularly as Paul closes out his letter, sometimes in the middle as he talks to Timothy. So I'd like you to turn, if you would, hold your finger here and turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 19. That's another place where we see some, and we won't go through this whole entire passage in Romans 15, but it's another place where we see some very important principles. And in your, in your bulletin on the back, you'll see some questions. And if, the, if you're a note taker, you'll find some of these, uh, that I think, that will augment what you understand to be the work of the Lord. And I just want to give you kind of a sampling, if you will, that this is not unusual, that to watch for this as you go through Paul's letters, you'll begin to see uh, his, his passion and his uh, things that he thought were important, and those are the things then that we can begin to incorporate as important and our passions as well. Now, just as a primer this morning, I want you to look here, and, and again, he is finishing up his letter to the church, and so he says this, so that from Jerusalem, see where I am, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I think that's pretty important. If you look on a map and you see the distance between Jerusalem and Illyricum, you will notice how far, how long a distance that is, particularly in the first century and how far he had gone to do his ministry. And just as an example of what ministry looks like as we look at Paul's description of his ministry, uh, we saw that he stuck to what he was supposed to do. And I think we can pull that out as we see the distance and the time and the commitment and the hardship that he had to go through, we recognize that Paul just stuck with his ministry. 
So I think a lot of times it's easy to just kind of say, well, there's a little bit of difficulty or man, I've been doing this a while and so I really need to change or I need a break or whatever. But understand for Paul, uh, that wasn't one of the options. One of the options was just to do the ministry that he was supposed to do and complete it and do what, he, what the Lord had sent him to do. And we saw that in our passage last time that you know, ministry is long-term, ministry is an investment with people over time, and we'll look at it again today. But here Paul says, you know, I stuck with this ministry that I was given from Jerusalem uh, as a starting boundary all the way to Illyricum. In other words, he maximized, if you will, every opportunity and met the full range of responsibility God had given him, and he didn't back off from it. And so as your ministry model should be the same, you know, commit to do the work the Lord has given you absolutely to do it completely Use the gifts you have without holding back and stick with it. And I think that's what we can pick from Paul. And I think if we looked at any of the ending letters that he closes with, we could pull that principle out continually. Uh, you know, as we look at Acts and he's talking to the Ephesian elders and he says, you know, I have not uh, shied away from giving you the full gospel. I've given you the full preaching of the Lord to you. I, I, as I think back in my mind, Paul says, I haven't left off giving you everything you need. And I've warned you that, you know, what's going to happen in the future and all that. So he, you know, he realized he stuck with it. He did what he was supposed to do. And so I think that that's a very important principle and why I want to stop here. Now, just a little further in verse 23, look there in Romans uh, 15. He says, and now he says, with no further place for me in these regions. See that where it says that? And I, and I think, you know, we know Paul's drive, really, which was uh, to preach Christ where it wasn't already named. And he'd gone through this area. He'd evangelized this area, so there was no further place for him there. And, and he plans to go to Rome, and he has a plan to go to Spain. He doesn't know how the will of God will work out in those plans. Of course, his trip to Rome uh, was at, at, the, at the courtesy of the Roman Empire. I don't think he planned to go to Rome that way. I think he planned to go to Rome on his own, but he find, he, the Lord took him to Rome, but not the way he planned to go. Uh, but as we saw last time, he knows what he's supposed to be doing. So it's not a matter of, I'm going to go to Rome, I wonder what I'll do, or I'm going to go to Spain, I wonder what I'll do, or... You know, I spent all this time from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Uh, what was I supposed to do? He knew what he was supposed to do. See, and We looked at that last time. We'll look at it again in just a minute. And then he says this. Uh, now, no further place. Look with, me, look with me in your copy of God's word. No further place for me in these regions. And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain. So he's talking to the believers in Rome. I want to come to you. I've had a longing to come to you. I want to take my journey to Spain because Spain's never yet been evangelized. And Paul is a trailblazer. He's a missionary. He's a church planner. Someone else is going to do the majority of the watering and all of that that we saw in our current letter. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Um, remember as he talks about, as the church is arguing about who's the best pastor, uh, and he, he says this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, so that neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. And so, you know, mostly others will be building on the foundation Paul has laid, and he's stuck to his calling, uh, and that is to lay the foundation. Others are still called to do that. And, you know, as you think about us recently, that's why Eli and Jess have gone from us. They were called to lay a foundation in another place where Christ is not named. So that's still happening in the church today. People who have the gift of evangelism go out, and they plant churches somewhere where Christ isn't named, and that's what uh, they're doing. That's what Paul did. And it's the essence of the spiritual gift of evangelism is, is that outworking of going where Christ isn't named. Some are called to come along and build on the foundation. Uh, the role of pastor teacher particularly is to build on the foundation that is laid. So again, you know, in another place, you know, we see Paul giving us an example uh, of what uh, ministry looks like. And we can see that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 
Paul says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So he's talking to Timothy, a young pastor, and he says, who is to judge the living and the dead? So I'm charging you, Timothy, in, 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 in the presence of Christ, who, who understands all the dynamic of what's going on in the church. He understands all the dynamic of spiritual gifts and whether you're serving like you should, all that kind of stuff. He's going to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. So he says, listen. Timothy, if you're going to do anything, make sure you preach the word. Timothy is a pastor, teacher. He is one who is building on the foundation that Paul laid. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it, go ahead and do it. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. If you had to summarize what a pastor teacher is to do, this is it, okay? There's lots of things people expect a pastor teacher to do. There's a lot of things that expectations people may have, uh, ideas of how it should look, uh, you know, uh, you know, things that they think should go on. Here's the deal. And you find this in a number of places. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. You should try that sometime. Reprove, re rebuke, and exhort. Try those three things by themselves and see how that, how that falls on the ears of people who perhaps are not walking in the spirit. It's an, interest, it's an interesting dynamic. And actually, it's one of the one another's in, in Galatians that tells you to do that. Uh, and so that's one of the things that pastor teachers has to do. And so uh, Paul tells Timothy, do it with great patience, do it with instruction. So where is Timothy's spiritual gifting lie? Well, it's obviously pastor teacher. That's part of the work of what they do. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Verse 4, and they'll turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you, Timothy, even though that's what's going on with some, but you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship. If Timothy's spiritual gifting lay as pastor teacher, then this last statement makes sense. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so Timothy's ministry has made up basically of being a pastor teacher. But to balance that gifting, Paul told Timothy uh, to... He would also have to do the work of an evangelist from time to time. And so from time to time, he'd have to begin by laying a foundation with folk. And he, he would have an opportunity to talk to someone where Christ isn't named. He'd have to lay that foundation. So the role of an evangelist, and in this case, Paul, the apostle, is to lay that foundation. And the church needs both, see? The church needs those who are pastors, teachers that build on the foundation that's already laid. The church needs evangelists to lay the foundation so that that, uh, that structure can be built. And so both of those things are found in the church. And uh, Paul, of course, uh, after he had founded that uh, foundation, he didn't want to stay, you know, and he didn't, uh, he didn't put the foundation down in Rome, so he wasn't planning on going and staying there with them. He was going to go there and visit them and encourage the church. He wasn't opposed to that. Of course, the, the, the letter to Rome indicates that Paul is concerned about all the believers. So he didn't lay that foundation, but he's writing a letter and saying, hey, you know, this is what you need to do, and this is how you need to uh, submit your life, and this is what it looks like to be uh, to justified and all of that kind of stuff that we went through. But he's going to go on. He's only stopping off there, and he's going to go on to an unevangelized field. But he had a continuing desire to minister to churches, even difficult ministries. He still didn't shy away from that. He just, just dive, he would just dive right in. Now, Paul's not interested in building on another man's foundation. We see that. He had the call of a missionary. And when he led uh, people to Christ, 1 Corinthians 9, 2, he says that's the seal of that, of that gift of evangelism. That's the seal of his apostleship. Uh, here in the first century, if to others I'm not an apostle. See, Paul always had to struggle with that, not being respected, being uh, uh, run down, all that kind of stuff. At least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. That's what marked him as an apostle, the fact that people had come to faith in Christ Jesus through his ministry. So to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.2, he says, you are our letter. 
written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, uh, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. Now, now catch this, beloved. You understand the difficulty Paul had in this church. Okay? So he starts out in 1 Corinthians 1, and he says you're saints, and then talks about what it means to, to be a saint. And then we see the next intervening 15 chapters of what it looks like to be a, a saint that walks in the flesh. And that uh, criticizes Paul and has disunity and all the kind of stuff that's going on and complaining and backbiting and all the stuff. And he has to deal with all this stuff. But he says, listen, you are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. So what's it going to be and what's it going to look like when they read you? Is it going to reflect Christ well? See, Paul says, listen, you know, your response then vertically to obedience to Christ is your responsibility. But hey, you know, you are that letter cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our ad adequacy is from God. In other words, Paul says, listen, I do the ministry here, but I'm not adequate. I'm, I'm not up to the task. I, didn't feel I don't feel sufficient, but Christ is sufficient, and we just count on him to do the work. I'm going to give you the word. Christ does the work. So you're coming to Christ, tells a story about us. He's a missionary. He's an evangelist. He, he didn't feel sufficient to do it. He gives credit to the Lord, and the church still needs this today, see? It's another model of what faithful ministry looks like. It's, it's doing the Lord's work. That's what that looks like. Paul used his life in every opportunity God gave him as he took it and used it to its fullest extent. And here's the deal. You ask, the, you ask yourself this question as we look at those uh, number of those verses and you think about what ministry really looks like. Here's the question you can ask yourself. Am I faithful in that proclamation? So in every opportunity, as the Lord opens up the ministry, am I faithful to proclaim it? See? Am I writing that correct letter? See, whatever they reflect but after that, after you've given out the gospel, whatever it is, that's between them and the Lord. Your responsibility, are you, are you faithful to that proclamation? To every opportunity that God gives you to do the work of an evangelist, to carry out the Great Commission. See, and we looked at, at 2 Timothy uh, um, 4, 1 through 5, so 6 through 8, I think, follows up with a great thought. Paul says this, and again, there's so much here, we can just break this down and just say, okay, ministry model, let's just pick them out. But you just try to pick them out as we read them, and I'll give you a couple things to think about. For I am, catch this, already being poured out as a drink offering. So right away, you know, Paul wasn't waiting for some future time to do the work of the Lord, to pour himself into whatever it was. He's already being poured out, see? I'm already doing that. Wherever he was, it, Paul didn't have to ask, I wonder what I should be doing. It's just I'm pouring myself out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come, and I fought the good fight. The time of my departure, we're talking about to be absent from this body and then to be present with the Lord. So the departure is the final departure, the one that Paul's longing for but knows it's better for him to be on earth okay and so paul says my departure has come i fought the good fight i finished the course i've kept the faith see there's there's a bunch of stuff isn't it i fought the good fight i finished the course i've kept the faith in the future verse 8 there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me mark this mark this beloved but also all who have loved his appearing now there are are so many principles of what faithful ministry looks like here, but here's the deal. During the work of the Lord that we're, that we're looking at in our current passage, doing faithful ministry, as we see in this passage, is summed up as what? What's the very last, um, second to the last thing? All those who have loved his appearing. See, 
If you want to just sum up the work of the Lord in a general statement, it's all those who've loved his appearing. So, because if you love his appearing, what are you going to do? See? If you loved his appearing, then you're pouring yourself out as you should in every possible area. Why? Because if you're loving his appearing, then you want to be doing what, you're, what you've been called to do, what you've been gifted to do at the moment that he appears, right? I mean, if you're thinking about his appearing all the time, then that's going to change how you act. It's going to change whatever conversation you're going to have in a few minutes or in an hour or two. It's going to change how you prioritize your life and how you prioritize what you have, your material things. If you loved his appearing, it finds its way working out in however you're gifted, you're doing it, see? And then it also finds its way in that you're not doing things the scripture specifically says not to do, see? And so to the best of the ability of the Holy Spirit working in you, you've loved his appearing, see? And God has saved up for him a crown. That's what he tells Timothy. Do you have one waiting for you? And ask yourself this question. Again, you can copy this down in your notes. Have you loved his appearing enough to pour yourself out like a drink offering? Is that been really the, as you sum up your life up until this time, regardless of how long you've been in the faith, okay? Some of you long in the faith, other of you short in the faith. Up until this point, would you consider in general that you have poured yourself out as a drink offering? See, because if that's the case, you've loved his appearing, whatever it was. See, Paul didn't have to ask, what should I be doing? Wherever you are, you're doing these things that are trademarks of faithful ministry. And so Paul showed himself to be an evangelist, to be a trailblazer, an example of ministry. And in that way, you ask yourself, you know, am I an evangelist am I, or am I doing the work of an evangelist? Because those are your only two choices, okay? You're either an evangelist and that's, your, that's part of your gifting and you regularly share the faith and you're, going, and you're talking to people where Christ is not named. Or you're doing the work of an evangelist, which just means you deliberately go out of your way to find somebody to share the faith with. And that's not necessarily your primary gifting, but you're carrying out the Great Commission. So it's one of the two, but it's got to be one of the two. See. And so then if you're asking yourself that, you know, if you love Jesus appearing to pour yourself out like a drink offering, if you're an evangelist or doing the work of an evangelist, here's the thing. What part of your circle of influence in your life would represent a place where Christ isn't named? And I know some of you well enough to know where that is. I don't know all of you well enough to know where that is. So that's a question you can ask yourself. What part of my circle of influence allows me to do the work of an evangelist? Okay. Now, I'm not talking about a Sunday school class. I'm talking about something in the, someplace in the world where you are amongst people where Christ isn't named. That's the work of an evangelist, see? But it's part of our job, isn't it? It's part of faithful ministry. And so again, you know, in Romans, in Timothy, we can see what it looks like to minister. They're all over the place. And you, as you read through there, read with eyes that are looking to, what's this example that Paul's giving? Why is he naming these people? Why, are you, why is he talking about places that no longer exist and churches that don't exist there anymore? Why is that important to me? And then you ask, why did the Lord include that in the Word of God? Because it could have been, the letter could have been closed off in any way. But these things are there. And I think that it's very important as you start to see Paul name these things and talk about his itinerary and talk about, sum up a little bit about where he's been. Those become then the, if, if you will, the, the guidelines, the principles for us into what real, true, faithful ministry looks like. Now, we've done that. Now turn back to 1 Corinthians 16, and we'll, we'll jump into the passage for today. And as we begin to know the heart of the Apostle Paul, as we look at these other passages and see where his true heartbeat was, here, you know, we see that he had a love for the continuing growth of people in places where he had ministered. And this, it's unique here, I like, I like this uniquely, because he talks about going back uh, to Macedonia, he talks about going back to Corinth. We know how difficult life was for him in those areas, and people, but those people were never, uh, and those places were never far from his mind. And so again, 
at the end of this letter then, we find Paul's words and plans and really an example, again, of faithful ministry. And, and we started last week to pull some principles from these passages that model what faithful ministry looks like. And verse 10 got us started. And that's where Paul is talking about Timothy's ministry and his own ministry. And we saw the key to this passage when he says this, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So I love that passage. It's very, very important to me. As I read that, uh, I'm just thinking, okay, that's what you want to do, right? I mean, if you think about it, as you think about your life to being pleasing to the Lord, you want to do the Lord's work, right? I mean, that's just, I think that's just axiomatic, isn't it? We want to do the Lord's work. We believe we're doing the Lord's work. But here in the scripture, we have him saying to t about Timothy, he's doing the Lord's work as I also am. So immediately, all my antennas go up and like, okay, well, what's that look like? Okay, can we find some ideas in the scripture that de definitively say Timothy is doing this and Paul has just now said he's doing the Lord's work, and Paul is doing X, and he just through saying, and I'm doing the Lord's work, and we can say, okay, if we're doing that, we know we're, we're safely inside that zone of doing the Lord's work. And so that's, that's what we're, as we think about this passage, that's what should be going through your mind. Okay, if he's doing the Lord's work, Timothy's doing the Lord's work, then we should be paying attention to what that looks like. Doing the Lord's work is how Paul summed up all of his ministry, of course. Everything he did, he did with... Uh, the understanding of what the Lord required of him, and he applied that understanding. And there were all kinds of expectations uh, of Paul, all kinds of opinions about, about what he did and what he, what he should do. But for Paul, the Lord's work was the work defined for him from the word of God. That was it. And what God said to do, that's what Paul did. And so we can be certain that as Paul understood what the Lord wanted him to do, he did it. And that general submission to doing the work of the Lord becomes that pattern for us. It's not always immediately clear to Paul, um, you know, where that work would take place. Like we saw, you know, Romans just a minute ago, he plans to go to Rome, he plans to go to Spain. Or like he said to Timothy, the time of my departure, you know, is at hand. I'm getting ready to depart this world. That's what he thought was going to happen. It wasn't going to be long, he didn't think, you know. But the bottom line is it was a little bit longer uh, after he said that. But that was in his mind. That's what he thought the Lord was telling him. And so, but what he did know was what the Lord expected him to do, and he did that. And as we saw, that included, you know, carrying out the Great Commission, uh, carrying out the Great Commandment, uh, giving God glory for what he accomplishes, preaching the true gospel, and giving them an understanding of what obedience looks like. You know, living with personal integrity, sticking out it out with difficult ministry, you know, doing the work of an evangelist. So he, he wasn't regretting the end of his life in Acts 20, as we see him telling the Ephesians, you know, they're all telling him, hey, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to go to bonds, and you're going to go to change, and you're going to go to prison. He's like, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me because I am doing what I'm supposed to do. And he's not regretting the end of his life. And, you know, as I get older and the older I get, you know, I look at some of my friends that are in different fields and they're like, they're like, you know, lamenting, you know, I, you know, looking forward to, you know, to retirement and then, you know, lamenting how old they are, or whatever. And, you know, for me, it's, it's not that at all because I, I feel like as the Lord called me into ministry that I've just in doing ministry, it just gives me one more year of doing exactly what I think the Lord exactly called me to do. I feel very confident in that. See? And that confidence can be yours as well. As you invest your life and give yourself away and pour yourself out like a drink offering, it doesn't matter that you're getting older. You're getting a little bit closer to Christ, and as you've given your life away and that becomes the pattern of your life, then over the long haul, just getting older is just another year that you've got to do the thing that the Lord wanted you to do. So Paul's going towards bondage, he's going towards persecution, he's not worried. He spent his life as he should. Now look at verses 5 through 7, 1 Corinthians 16. And we pulled out four principles here, and they're very important. He says this, I'll come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you, or even spend the winter 
so that you may send me on my way wherever I go, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord, commit, if the Lord permits. Now, in general, uh, we saw that Paul is wanting to come back to Corinth. That's just obvious. Principle number one, we saw this from Paul. The work of the Lord is a continued investment in people. A continued investment in people over the long haul. Paul's still concerned for the welfare of the people he'd shared the gospel with, the people he'd discipled, the people he'd loved. He was invested there, and those folks in those churches were never far from his mind. And then we saw principle number two, which really falls right on top of that and builds on that. It is, it is uh, the principle of taking your time. You know, I stay with you and even spend the winter with you. Doing the work of the Lord is a long-term investment. He'd already been there 18 months before that as he planted that church there, and it's a long-term investment. It takes time to earn trust. It takes time to earn credibility. It takes time to outlast those that oppose you. And, so, and for Paul, see, it, it's no secret that there were many in Corinth that didn't like Paul. They gossiped about him. They undermined his teaching. They belittled him. They supposed things about him. And even after three visits and multiple letters, he never really got to the point where he had won everyone over. Ultimately, though, for Paul, it didn't matter. He loved them. He was committed to discipling them. He was doing the work that the Lord had given him, and that's what that looks like. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, you know, 3 through 5, where the Corinthian church is arguing again over who's the best pastor who had ever uh, been there with them, uh, he says this. He says, uh, but to me, it's a very small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet but I am not by this acquitted. So Paul says, listen, I, if you want to have some preconceived idea about what I should be like or what I should be doing or whatever, you know, you've got this idea of what it's supposed to look like to pastor you. Listen, uh, I'm not worried too much about that. And in fact, he just says, listen, I'm not aware that I'm doing anything wrong. But that doesn't, that doesn't exonerate me by itself. For the one who examines me is the Lord. He says, listen, just because I don't think I've done anything wrong doesn't mean I'm not wrong. I'm just saying that I'm not worried about it at this point. I don't know of anything I'm doing wrong. And the Lord's gonna, the one who's going to examine me. And then he says this, therefore... Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and that each, man will pray, each man's praise will come to him from God. He says this, maybe you should lay off judging me, he says. You know, maybe you don't know everything you think you know about me. Maybe you should just wait and let it all wash out. And maybe when it all gets to the end, then the Lord who's going to judge everyone will have everyone's motives laid clear, yours and mine. See, Paul says, listen, I'm not too worried about all of this. And I don't know of anything particularly against myself, but that doesn't make me free of possible judgment later from the Lord. I'm just saying, wait and lay off a little bit. You don't know everything you think you know. And someday Paul says, all the motives for everyone will be clear. But in the meantime, Paul just keeps on staying with it. It didn't affect the fact that he wanted to go back to this church who'd given him such a difficult time and stay with them for the winter. Now, just between you and me, that's probably the last place I'd want to go spend the winter break. Right? You don't want to go where there's a bunch of people who just don't like you. But Paul didn't care because he knew what he was doing was the ministry of the Lord. He knew that regardless of what the Lord was doing with the church, particularly, that he was doing what he was supposed to do. See. And then at the end of verse 6, he gives us our third principle on, on what the work of the Lord looks like. Modeled by Paul back in 1 Corinthians 16, 6, he says this. So that you may send me on my way. So principle number three, help others get involved. Help others get invested. So the work of the Lord is continuing investment in people. Number two, it takes time to do that. Long term. Principle number three, it helps others get invested. He's hoping they'll become dynamically involved. You know, as I think back to principle two, it just pops in my mind. You know, the average stay of a pastor of the church is just a little over two years. Now, I've got my ideas about why that's the case. I think it is, and this is just pastor talking to pastor. 
I think they ran out of all their prepackaged sermons, and then they're going to move on. That could be it. But, and I said that tongue-in-cheek. But I think that the biggest reason is, is that after about two years, you really get into it. I mean, then you really start seeing the opposition. You, still, you really start seeing the people who don't like you, and they're being very vocal about it, and they can be very nasty. And, you know, people, guys are just like, I don't need this. You know, at any, at any given time, there's 15,000 churches in America that don't have a pastor. I'm just moving on. I can, do, I can do this work. You know, this is just a lineal move. I'll just go over here and do the thing, see? But I think that's opposite of what Paul is indicating here. That's a long-term investment. I'm going to come and spend time with you. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to continue to invest. We know what the people are like. It didn't matter. Paul says, listen, this is my ministry. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to keep on doing it. And then he says, and, and part of my ministry is to help others get invested, hoping they'll be dynamically involved. He's hoping they'll take care of his needs, obviously, uh, as he does the work. And he's hoping that some will come along in the work as well. See, Paul didn't know for sure where the Lord would have him do it, but there's no question what the Lord would have him do. Now look at verse 7. For I do not wish to see you just now in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. He'd already been to the church plant for 18 months. He wants to go back even though it was and continues to be difficult. He's going to go back to Macedonia. We saw in Acts 16 uh, the difficult ministry he had there in Macedonia. It didn't matter to Paul. He's doing the work of the Lord, and he cared about those he ministered to. He cared enough to correct them, to love them, to give himself away, uh, to exhort, reprove, correct, instruct uh, and all of that kind of stuff. So he cared enough about to do that. He's just going to go back and keep doing it. He really loved them. And, beloved, that's a love that has to come from Christ, okay? Because here's the deal. You know, loving in the midst of hard times and sometimes unreciprocated love uh, just takes the love of Christ in your heart to do it, see? And he again defers to the Lord's plan, if the Lord permits. And Paul always deferred to God's plan. We see it over and over again. But that's principle number four, leave it in the Lord's hands, he knew what he was supposed to do. He knew where he thought he was supposed to do it, but he always had an awareness that the Lord had the last say. This is what I plan to do. This is what I'm going to do when I get there. But the Lord's got sovereignty over this. Now look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Verse 9, For a wide door for effective service has opened for, to me, and there are many adversaries. That's interesting. And those, I always think that last compound sentence is interesting. Okay, um, a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So let's rush right over there, right? I mean, that just seems incongruous, doesn't it? There's a wide door for effective service, and there's a lot of people who are going to war against me when I do it. So let's just jump right in. Now, obviously, something has happened for Paul. Uh, he wants to go to Corinth. That's obviously the intent of the passage we're looking at. In fact, he wants to follow this letter. I think 1 Corinthians 4 really indicates he wants to follow the letter, perhaps go with Timothy and the letter to Corinth. Obviously, by the time he finishes this letter, as you read it right there in front of you, he knows they are going to read this letter before he gets there. Okay, obviously he wouldn't have contained, had this contained in the letter if he thought he was going to be there. He's not going to say, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Or if he's telling him what he's going to do, he knows the letter's going to arrive before him, even though he had intended to go with the letter. And he wants to go to Macedonia. These are his plans. And perhaps he would have already left to go with them uh, with Timothy, but he didn't. So he's going to defer to God's plan, and we saw as a principle for doing the work of the Lord, we always defer to God's plan. Now, verse 9 gives us a clue on what's going on. He says this, for a wide door, see it, for effective service has opened to me. Now, Paul is always looking for that, and I think that that's interesting. Uh, it's a common expression for him. I just want to get you the sense of it. In Acts chapter 14, verse 27, he uses the word, he says, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened, here it is, a door 
of faith for the Gentiles. So he comes back from his first missionary journey, and he gives a report. And that's how we get that pattern. When, people, when missionaries come back from the field, uh, they give a report. This is the pattern we picked up from uh, Acts. So Paul and, and Barnabas come back, and they're going to give a report of the field. And he says this, and you get the sense of the word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So this is a door that the Lord had opened for doing his work. And it was obviously effective. So he says, listen, there was an open door of faith to the Gentiles. So in order for them to be able to hear it, the Lord had to open the door and open their minds to hear it and all that. And Paul just, in general, references this open door that the Lord accomplished. Now, 2 Corinthians 2, 2.12, 2, again, we get the, the sense of the word. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a, catch it, a door was opened for me in the Lord. So Paul is doing the work of the Lord through carrying out the Great Commission, and God's the one who opened the door for him to do that. Okay? Again, Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, again, you get the sense of the word praying. Here he tells the church of Colossae to pray. And what does he want them to pray about? Well, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. So as Paul goes out, he asks the church of Colossae to pray for them that the door will open up for the word. Okay, have you ever prayed that as you've gone and spoke somewhere else? Sure, you have. And particularly some of our, uh, our Gideons and others who, pr who teach out from the church. I mean, you always pray that the Lord will open up a door for the word. See? Not just that you're going to speak, but that the door will be open for effective ministry. And so he asked the Col church of Colossae, pray that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Three prayer requests he asked them for. God will open up a door for the word. Number two, that Paul would speak the gospel. And number three, that it'd be clear how she, he should approach and deliver the gospel to the church. So God works in all those circumstances for those who are carrying out his work. And so Paul asks for prayer in that respect. And then we have this, I, I saved the best for last. This is a really great illustration because it's a modern illustration. Because here in Revelation 3, we're talking about modern day churches. The pattern for modern day churches. These seven churches at Ephesus are the pattern. And we looked at this when we looked through uh, this book. But it is the pattern for modern day churches. And so here's what, here's what John is told to say. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy. Now, this is an actual church in Philadelphia, but it's also a pattern for the modern church. Um, the angel to the church of Philadelphia write, he who is holy who is true, and who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I've put before you, and catch this, an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So John's writing to the church age. He's writing specifically to a faithful church. Faithful to what? Well, he knows their deeds. They've been faithfully doing the work of the Lord. So as he looks at the church in general, this Philadelphia church, and Every church that fits this model, he sees them faithfully doing the work the Lord has given, okay? Um, and they're faithful what? They have spiritual power. So the spiritual power is given to spiritual people. So that's obedient people. That means you've reigned in your private life and you're reigning in your thought life and you're reigning in uh, your, 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 how you respond to people and all that kind of stuff. So he gives spiritual power to spiritual people and they have kept the word. And what does it say? What does it mean by that? You know, kept the word. Well, that means that you read the word. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? As you go through your word each day, those are the questions you should be asking. What does the word say? What's it mean by this? And how does that apply? And then you begin to 
modify your behavior by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's called being sanctified by the Word of God. And so this church, this is what's going on. And so it says that Christ has opened up a door that nobody could shut because he's able to do that. They've not run from persecution. They have continued in, in the midst of very difficult ministry, and they have a little power, and they're doing this ministry, and God's opened this door for ministry for them. And there's thousands of little churches and medium-sized churches around the country and around the world who fit that exact model. They have a little power. They don't have a ton of power. It's not a megachurch. They, they don't have tons of resources. They have some. They have enough. They have a consistent ministry in the community, and the Lord is pleased with that, see? The Lord's pleased with that, and it becomes an example of what faithful ministry looks like, see? So God opens a door of ministry to them. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he says, um, first part of verse 9 gives us a clue, a wide door for effective service is open to me. We know exactly what he's speaking about. There's your next uh, principle of ministry. Okay, always watch for opportunity. As you are being poured out as a drink offering, you're going to be looking around for a place where you can, where you can fill a ministry need. And we say that over and over again. It's just, it's just one-to-one, okay? It's not, a, it's not rocket science. You know, if there's a ministry and it fulfills the work of the Lord and you can fill it, guess what? That's a perfect fit for you, okay? If there's a ministry and it fulfills the work of the Lord, okay, so it qualifies in the things we've looked at, it's giving out the gospel, it's discipling, all those kinds of things, okay, and you can meet that need, then that's where you plug in, see? Always watch for opportunity because get this, beloved, God is still in the business of opening up opportunities for us to do his work. He's still in the business of doing that. If there's a need in the church, it'll fulfill the purposes of God as he's laid them out for us, then listen, and you can fill that need, that's an easy decision, okay? And before we leave this verse, you know, opened is in the perfect tense, and that's in, it's important. It just means this. Unlike the verses we looked at above where, you know, we were praying that God would open a door or, or that, you know, maybe God will open a door or whatever, here it's, it's standing open. Paul says, the Lord has opened a door, and it's standing open. I don't have to pray for you for the door to be open. It's already open for effective service. Paul recognizes that's the case, and he's going to walk right on through it. The need is there. God has provided Paul and all those who do the work of the Lord the open door to meet the need. Okay? So we, we mimic Paul. We look like Paul as a disciple of Jesus when we see the open door, and we walk through it and meet the need. Okay? It's very simple. Now, look at the last part of verse 9, this incongruous part that's in this sentence. And there are many adversaries. And right away, I think that you can understand that uh, principle. Expect adversity and difficulty when you do the work of the Lord. Okay? In fact, I would say this. I think it would be safe to say that a believer is rarely allowed to pursue the work of Christ unimpeded. I mean, just in general, I think you can really take that as, as just a... a just really cast in stone, okay? It's very unusual, I think, for someone to do the work of Christ unimpeded. You know, every time we send out short-term missions, every time, you know, uh, Jones is popping into my mind, they go to Romania. There's always, there's always difficulty, you know, that has to be overcome, right? It was al there's always resistance to the effective ministry. Last time it was housing, I think, uh, and then the Lord worked it all out at the last minute. You know, and those kinds of things are very common, Okay, and you perhaps, if you're involved in directly in a ministry right now, you understand there, there's going to be adversity, there's going to be difficulty. It may be personal, all right, it may be health, it may be financial. There's all kinds of things that are going to come and be part of the adversity. Okay, expect that, expect difficulty, expect adversity when you do the work of the Lord. 
And if Paul is our example, so I will say this, I think it's safe to say that a believer is rarely allowed to pursue the work of Christ unimpeded. And if Paul is our example in anything, we can certainly see the truth about that statement. And usually the greater the opportunity, beloved, the more serious the difficulty. Now Paul's door here is in Ephesus. So I want to talk to you about, uh, talk to you about in the time we have left, Ephesus a little bit, okay? In Ephesus, uh, we can read uh, in numerous places, but certainly in Acts, in Ephesus, Paul had some of those in the synagogue turn against him. And he had to stop teaching there because it was so dangerous anymore from those in the synagogue who wanted to kill him. And so he had to move somewhere else and teach. Demetrius the silversmith didn't like him too much either. In fact, he started a riot where Paul would have been killed if the disciples had let him walk in there and try to explain himself. But they hid him, and there was a big riot, and, and, and Demetrius the silversmith is upset because people are coming to faith in this large amount. They're not buying idols anymore, and so they're ticked off that he's, he's ruining the industry and all that, and they just want to kill Paul. And so he could have lost his life. He had some Jews try to copy his teaching. They're severely beaten by demons. Remember the seven sons of Sceva? Hey, we're, we cast you out of the name of Paul. And the demon says, yeah, we, we know Paul. We know Jesus, but we don't know you. And then they give him a, a thrashing within an inch of the life. Paul, the clothes off and send him out of the house. And so that, you know, for Paul, even though that was probably very satisfactory to know that there was no imposters, it was also hard on his ministry. Because then, then it says everybody was in fear. So in the midst of all of that, the gospel went out. He's teaching, he's discipling, he's doing the work, and, and all the while, see, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, I'd like you to hold your finger here. Turn to 2 Corinthians 1.8. This, this is a fantastic passage. I want you to see what's going on. It has to do with the cartoon I had right at the beginning. If you remember looking at that, where Paul and Silas are in jail, and they're strumming the guitar, singing the, singing the ministry blues. 2 Corinthians 1.8. This tells us how Paul was feeling. And I think it's important to understand this. Okay, If you want to really... Uh, really capture this last, uh, for today, this, this last principle that expect adversity and difficulty when you do the work of the Lord. I think that you'll be able to see a little bit about what's going on here. Maybe compare it to some of the difficulty you have had. I don't, I don't think we'll see at the same level, but I think that you can see how Paul was feeling, okay? Because we look at Paul as like, you know, he's like this, uh, you know, he's very, very, very direct and, you know, uh, says what he thinks and, and uh, all that. You think perhaps he would never be intimidated, would never feel a certain way, never feel insufficient, but we've seen several times that he has, but listen to what he says here. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren. So in other words, no matter what you may think about us, this difficulty in Ephesus is pretty difficult. So he's talking about this ministry in Ephesus. He says this, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He says the, the ministry there was so difficult, there was many times that he despaired of death. And so he couldn't dwell on it anymore. He just he couldn't worry about whether or not the, he, his life was going to be taken. He just had to trust in the Lord who raises people from the dead. In other words, so he just went on the other side. He says, okay, you know, this ministry is so hard, and I'm so worried about the fact that I may be killed. I'm not going to think about it anymore. What I'm going to think about is that I serve the God who raises the dead. So if he's going to kill me, he could raise me if he wants to. That's the issue. Who delivered us, look at verse 10, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. In other words, he delivered us from spiritual death, the great peril of death, and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, he will yet deliver us. He says, listen, we trust in the God who raises the dead. We know he delivered us from our own sin and the peril that was there, and we just trust him with this. But I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we had, and we were burdened excessively beyond our strength and despaired even of life. That's Paul in Ephesus. So he says, listen, there's a great 
door open for ministry, effective service, and there are many adversaries. It's just understated. But you can go other places in the Word and see what it looks like. So the whole time he's ministering, he's despairing, and he's burdened excessively. And this is not unusual, see? This is the norm, if you will, if you're doing the work of the Lord. And I would guess, you know, that a marketing and advertising firm would suggest that we probably ought not to put that in the welcome letter, okay? That you might, you might have a lot of difficulty and that you will despair a lot. So you might not want to have that in your welcome manual that says, hey, welcome to Christianity or welcome to the ministry because you're going to have a lot of difficult times. And sometimes we're so easily discouraged into quitting. But Paul, Paul was discouraged, but he didn't quit. He despaired, but he didn't give up. You know, look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Just flip over two pages. It's so rich in these types of verses. Paul says of the work of the Lord, and he, that he and others are doing, he says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Just three pages over. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So this treasure of the gospel, this treasure of redemption, is in this clay pot, if you will, this body that's unredeemed, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not for ourselves. So he openly admits, listen, I carry this burden of the ministry of the gospel and uh, this, this uh, redemption in this clay vessel, and so everybody knows that the power that comes from it is coming from the Lord. See, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, verse 9, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. See, always looking at the upside of it. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, that's pretty rough, isn't it? Now, I don't think there are many in, Western, in the Western church that can identify with the severity of that type of adversity. But I think it, on the other hand, I think it's impossible to see true ministry apart from difficulty if that was Paul's experience and that typifies how he uh, would describe the ministry that he was involved in. So it's not surprising then that Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who's the savior of all men, especially of believers. So if that's, if that's what it looks like physically to minister, and adversity is always there, and discouragement and all those things that come along with doing the work of the ministry, then there's going to have to be some encouragement about why you just continue. Otherwise, you just throw the towel in, right? And those two words, labor and strive, are easy to overlook. But, but Paul is trying to encourage Timothy to keep on keeping on. So Paul says, look, don't lose sight of the big picture. You labor, kopiao, grow weary, you grow tired, you grow exhausted with toil or burden or grief or effort. That's the idea. And you strive, agonizomi, where we get our English word agonize. It has to do with contending with opposition, though, in the Greek. So contending with opposition, we agonize, we strive with this. It's also used to refer to danger and dealing with difficulty. So don't lose sight of the big picture. You, you labor, kopiao, you Agonizomy, you, you strive against these things that we just got through talking about. Because you have fixed your hope on the living God. You endure labor and you endure striving because you fixed your hope on the living God. He is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. And when you fix your hope on Christ, you do what he says. And that becomes the encouragement. Listen, yes, we labor. Yes, we strive. Yes, ministry is full of adversity. 
and difficulty. We should expect it. And yet we still endure it. Why? Because we fixed our hope on the living God. He's the Savior of all men. That's the highest hope we can fix. And in the middle of the difficult times, why do you think Paul says, you know, we're crushed, but we're not, we're not perplexed, see? Uh, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because we fixed our hope on the living God. He's the Savior of, of all men. Indeed, I had the sentence of death within my heart. I didn't even trust myself. But God who raises the dead, he's the Savior of all men. He's over all things. He'll deliver us. We've set our hope on him. See? So Paul can say then, there's a wide open door for ministry, and there are many adversaries. And it's perfectly understandable that both of those things are in the same sentence for Paul. Because he fully expected there to be adversaries if there was a wide open door for ministry. There'd be difficulty. So it's for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who's the Savior of men, especially of believers. Look at verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. What things? That you're going to have difficulty, that you're going to have to labor, that you're going to have to strive, that there's going to be resistance to the ministry, and you set your hope on Christ who's the Savior of all men. See? Prescribe and teach these things. This is how it's going to be. Make sure people understand this, Paul says to Timothy. It's impossible to see ministry apart from difficulty. Everyone who does the work of the Lord is the audience. Prescribe and teach these things. See? Now, just to shore up that principle in your mind, I'll just do this quickly. Look at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 16. So flip back, 1 Corinthians 16, 10. Now, just so that you make sure we, we've got this right, okay? So he says there's a wide open, there's a wide open uh, ministry opportunity, and there's many adversaries. And then he says this. And this is just hard for me to believe. It would be hard for me to believe if I wasn't in the ministry for 28 years. But it's, listen to what he says. Now, if Timothy comes, are you with me? See that he's with you, catch this, without cause to be afraid. Now, I just want you to, I want you to reconcile that, okay? Um, Timothy's coming to Corinth. And that's a church. And he's bringing a letter from Paul. And Paul actually has to write in the letter, catch this, beloved, make sure he's able to be with you without so much opposition that it causes him to despair. Is that hard for you to grasp your mind around? That Paul actually has to say that to them? He actually has to write a letter and says, hey, make sure he comes and he can do what he's supposed to do without you making him be afraid. And then the rest in verse 10 it says, what? For he's doing the Lord's work as I also am. What's that mean? You know, whatever you may be thinking about Timothy, and whatever you may think about Paul, and whatever your opinion may be about what they're doing, Paul says, let's just clear up one thing. Timothy's doing the work of the Lord. And I'm doing the work of the Lord. And I want you to let him be there without having to be afraid. Don't forget who he's serving, in other words. Don't forget what he's doing. And let him do it. And as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, maybe you should lay off judging it for a while. Maybe you don't know what you think you know. Maybe there's more there. Maybe we should let the Lord come and just work the whole thing out. And then he'll tell me your motives and you'll know my motives, Paul says. How about that? And then look at verse 11. 
Exotheneo. Do not despise him. So we're talking about an attitude towards a pastor ministering and coming to a church in the name of Paul and bringing a letter. And Paul says, let him be here unafraid and don't despise him. Maybe you should not despise him. That's in the subjunctive, by the way, which means there's some contingency there that perhaps they will. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to say, don't do it, right? That's interesting, isn't it? Don't forget who he's serving. Don't forget what he's doing. Don't forget the work that he's doing. And let him do it. It shouldn't surprise us. Jesus, of course, warned us early on, John 15, 18. With this, we're going to close. He warned his disciples about two groups of people. Verse 18, he says this. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. So what's the first group? The unredeemed, right? If the world hates you, it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. So if you weren't redeemed and you were of the world, they'd accept you. It'd be great. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, it's because of this the world hates you. Now, there's the first group, okay? The world's going to hate you because of the light that you shine in the darkness. Most of us understand this to some extent or another. If you're in academia, of course, and you try to write in, in the, <laughs> you try to publish something in the world, they're just going to hate you because they hate Christ and they hate the light that you put out there, right? And you understand that. And you understand that in the workplace, okay? When you walk in integrity and you want to do what's right and you, you treat people correctly and all that kind of stuff, listen, you know, you're going to see people in the other in industries similar to yours and just say, what are you doing that for? That's ridiculous. Now, here's the second group. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, so who persecuted Jesus, by the way? The Jews, right? The religiously moral, those who were the spiritual leaders, right? They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So there were some that heard Jesus' words and kept it, and, and they'll, they'll react correctly to you as well. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know the one who sent me. So in other words, there's a second group that you're going to interact with, and if they kept my words, they'll keep yours, but if they didn't keep my words, they're going to do a bunch of stuff to you, and they're going to think they're doing it in a spiritual manner. They're going to have spiritual language. They're going to think they're doing it in the Lord's name, and Jesus just says, listen, there's two groups. Understand how this is going to work, see? Some are going to oppose you, and they'll do it in my name, Jesus said. If you're doing the Lord's work, some things will be evident, and some of those things that are evident are this. The work of the Lord is the continued investment in people. The work of the Lord requires you to take your time and invest over the long term, even in difficult ministry. Part of the work in the Lord that you're going to be doing is helping others get invested and catch the vision of what it looks like to serve the Lord and, and disciple. Part of working in and the work of the Lord is work as hard as you can and leave it in the Lord's hands. Part of the work of the Lord is principle. Always watch for opportunity because the Lord opens up those opportunities for people still. And when it's serving the Lord's purposes and it's an opportunity and you can meet it, that's a simple decision. And finally for today, expect adversity and difficulty when you do that work because that is the norm for those who work the work of the Lord. All right? We're out of time, so we're going to have to stop. I'd like to close in prayer, if you would, and then we're going to have a missions moment. I think you'll really enjoy it. And uh, we'll be back in this passage, Lord willing, next week and finish up that section on itinerary and move on into instruction where Paul gives some 
some instructions to the church that they are to submit to, and they'll be beneficial to us as well. Let's pray, if you would, with me. Lord, we thank you today for the, uh, the wonderful benefit of your word. We thank you. We say that often, Lord, but uh, it just becomes, it just takes on its life that you said it would have. You've exalted it equal to your own name. It has the power to divide the soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You certainly were at work today as you are all the time when we open the word and just read it and do and understand what it says and break it apart. Lord, we wish to teach the word, not use the word. So help us to break it apart continually, verse by verse, word by word. Help us to understand then what it says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies to us. Thank you for uh, the clear words from Paul here as he just bears his heart, as he talks about his itinerary, as he talks about his experience and the things that are coming up. Lord, thank you for the very practical way we can start to see what real ministry looks like doing the work of the Lord, as he said Timothy was doing and he was doing. Lord, help us then to conform to those works. Help us not to be found in the way of any of the things that are casted, uh, cast negatively here in the word, but only things that are cast positively. Do the work that you will amongst us. And Lord, we think uh, further in just a few minutes as we're going to go downstairs and break the bread. I pray that we'll all attend. Uh, we all need that fellowship. We need the, we need the uh, transparency. We need the opportunity to interact with each other, uh, to reconcile relationships perhaps that are strained, to by presence there, encouraging others. Lord, I pray that that would be part of what we place priority on. As we know your early church did. Lord, thank you for the ministries that are coming up in the weeks to come for the holiday season where we'll have a chance to minister to our community. I pray that you'll give us power to do that, uh, open a door there of effective ministry amongst our community as, we, as I pray constantly that you might do that and bring forth labors for the harvest for the harvest is white and ready. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. We thank you for them. We're not in any way discouraged by our times around us. We, we know that the world has to be in bad shape for you to catch away the church. We know the world has to be uh, disjointed and, and ununified and, and at opposite poles for, the, for a deceiver to come and say, okay, this is how it was before, but now we can, we can join together as one global enterprise and exceed anything that man has done before. We know we have to be in that kind of situation, but it's tough to live in these last times. It's tough to live when, when people want to have words that tickle their ears and don't want to hear sound doctrine. It's tough to live when the gospel's rejected so outright in, in our country, things that we have placed such a high value on uh, are just discarded and, and thrown away as not important. But Lord, we recognize we, that we look on the long view of history. We're not in any way unsettled because we know that you hold the future and that we're bundled up in the bundle of the righteous and that you will in no way deal with us as you'll deal with the wicked. So we encourage our hearts daily as we read the word and as we read the news that this is all part of your plan and how the world has to work in order for you to bring about the end of all things and to bring Israel back in their promises and to bring the church to redemption and Israel to redemption and glorified, uh, glorify the, the world and change it and make it new. And so we look forward to all that. We pray along those ends together with you as you have clearly spelled out what you plan to do. We pray again uh, to be praying along with you as Daniel did of old, knowing what your promises are, just praying those promises. Help us to be faithful ministers. Help us to carry out the gospel so clearly, the Great Commission. Help us not to forsake that. Help us to do the work of love amongst people in whatever oh. spiritual gifts we have ministered with love, which are physical acts of, of uh, blessing to other people. 
pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.